One of the uh, first times that I I met the um, most, probably one of the most influential teachers in my Dharma practice, which was Ajahn Chah many years ago, when he came to England and taught at a center outside of Oxford, where I began to um, attend retreats. And uh, as as he was uh, speaking, he gave a Dharma talk in Thai, and it was being translated. And as I was listening, I kept thinking, "This this is a really great what he's saying." Um, he had a, a very strong presence of uh, freedom, a lot of inner freedom, which was communicated. And at the end of the talk, he said, if you've been sitting here listening to this, thinking this is good or bad, then you haven't been listening properly. Because <laughs> I've been thinking how good it was, and I thought, well, that's, that's good, you know. That's <laughs> and so, you know, in this art of contemplation and meditation, can we keep listening into our being, and our process, and what we're with, and as things unfold, and noticing how much we tend to categorize our experience according to some kind of a criteria as good and bad, and should and shouldn't be, and how that gets projected so much onto the the self, the sense of self, and how it gets projected on uh, around us. Another time when um, Ajahn Chah attended to one of the Western monks who was training with him in Thailand, and this monk had had an injury when he was a young man, and as a result of that injury, he had to have surgery on his knees, which meant that he was in a, a Bangkok hospital with his legs in sort of slings and in a plaster cast and he couldn't sit cross-legged and he started to proliferate, you know, like a monk having to sit in an armchair and doesn't look good and, uh, you know, I can't do the real tough thing that everyone was doing in the monastery, sitting just on the concrete, cross-legged. So he was feeling really sorry for himself and Ajahn Chah came to visit and he bent over this monk and said, you know, how's it going? And the monk said, you know, Longpur, Venerable Father, shouldn't be like this, shouldn't be like this. And he said, well, you know, if it shouldn't be like this, it wouldn't be like this. <laughs> you know, so this, this way of, of, um, <laughs> of how much we project that, that it shouldn't be like this, and it shouldn't be like this, you know. There's so many things that it shouldn't be like this, and yet this is how it is. This is how it is. So, you know, when we were, one of my teachers, uh, the first uh, Western disciple in charge in Sumedho, in the monastic training, would always begin the day by reminding us this is how it is. That was a refrain. This is how it is. And sometimes this is how it is needs to be challenged, yes. And sometimes this is how it is needs to be changed. And this is how it is isn't appropriate but coming into relationship with how it is rather than a place of reactivity but from contemplation and having relationship to how it is so that 
we can best be informed in terms of our response. And that, that does take, there is a, a patient process. So tonight I really want to talk a little bit more about coming into relationship with how it is and not how we would like it to be. <laughs> uh, because often how we would like it to be and how it should be and how I should be and is, you know, is different than how it is. <laughs> And, you know, the reality of how it is, is is not always that easy, you know. So so being able to uh, to realize that what is not easy isn't necessarily a hindrance to the path, but it's actually the path. <laughs> you know, or, or another, uh, another, you know, these teachings Ajahn Chah gave in his, in very simple and direct ways when he taught it in the same visit. This was in the mid-1970s, so it was a long time ago, and... Um, he was teaching in London, and um, we were very, everyone was very excited to have this great, really great master come uh, to teach. And uh, so they set up the whole venue um, in, the, in what was the first Vihara in Hampstead. And it was a very hot summer's night, and all, all the windows were open. And this was the venue for the Dharma talk. And then across the road, there was a pub with a rock band happening that same night. So all night, because the windows were open, because it was hot, this sort of pounding music. And, and, agi- and everyone was in a state of terrible agitation because they were, you know, want to hear the words of the master. He couldn't really say very much. So, but he was just sitting there smiling and happy and looking at everyone and sort of taking it all in. And, and at the end of the, uh, this long span of time, he just said, you know, did you, did you get disturbed? Or did you go out and disturb the noise? <laughs> you know, do you know we go out and disturb what is with our projections of you know uh, of what what we feel shouldn't be. You know, so while we're caught in that dynamic, we we are actually generating suffering for ourselves, a lot of suffering. So we can this is we can actually come out of that dynamic through this this practice. Very helpful for that. <laughs> But first of all, we've been starting the practice and, you know, whether we start it in this first few days in the retreat or as we begin a formal sitting or throughout as we cultivate a meditation practice, then it's really encouraged that we we create a very good foundation of this calming, what's called the samatha meditation that we've been doing, or shamatha, or samadhi, this calming and gathering, calming and gathering, through the practices that we've been doing, with with the breath, with the body, the not now, the putting things to one side, the uh, skillful use of phrases, mantra, counting the breath, whatever techniques we've been using, listening to sound, being with body sensation, all of this is helping to to be present. So that is just a very... You know, primary foundation of the path, and that's always married with and taught with this more investigative, what's called vipassana or wise contemplation or dhamma vijaya, the investigation of reality or dharmas or how it is. So those two are always uh, in tandem together, as has been has been talked about already on the retreats. So to really reflect on that a bit tonight, how these two um, help and support each other as 
we become more gathered and more steady and uh, more here, then naturally we see how things are rather than being caught in our projections or the mind's uh, wishes and proliferations. So also there's many benefits from this calming practice, this studying practice. It's very pleasant actually as we get more skilled in it. We, We learn to to have an abiding, and then as it deepens, an abiding that's not so dependent on the sensory experience in the world, you know, because so often our happiness is so dependent on our sensory experience or what's happening around us or what other people are doing or whether it's pleasant or not, you know, so that that also is a very fickle foundation to rest our well-being on because things change and it's beyond our control or difficult things happen. So this samatha, this studying, is about developing an abiding that's pleasing, that's that that is uh, that has uh, that has its own agency, and so. Um, you know, we can learn to return to that just in one moment. It doesn't have to be sort of Olympic jhana, you know, where we lift off into the realms of neither perception nor non-perception. That would be very nice, you know, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. It can be even a moment of returning to take one deep breath and to feel the body is a moment of samadhi, is a moment of, of returning here and a moment of sanity, you're just orientating within that simplicity. And as this becomes, as we have more facility, then there, there are um, benefits. You know, sometimes it's called the healing aspect of the path. It helps to, to energetically to help some of the tangles within the body and the emotional, psychological, psychodynamic processes to to be metabolized, or the dukkha and stress that we carry in the body or in the heart helps that to be metabolized and processed. Just the simple activity of breath, body, sensation. You know, it also allows for a, 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 sten- a sense of more steadiness or, um, or um, um, this, uh, this inner, inner, inner uh, uh, calm. And, uh, you know, as the Buddha said, it's the pleasure, gives rise to this pleasure that is actually uh, is more, more pleasant than sensory experience, actually. So the, the pleasure of samadhi is more pleasant, has more, you know, has, more lead, has the conditions to, to bring a um, great sense of fulfillment and a lessening of desire and agitation. So you know, something we we work at through a lifetime, bit by bit, just uh, just cultivating this abiding, and then it also. But that's not the end. Ajahn Chah used to say, you know, there's two kinds of peace. There is the peace of samadhi. Yeah, but he said that. But it's also sometimes mixed with delusion, and the delusion is is the resistance to not wanting to be disturbed. <laughs> You know, this is the meditator's dis- dis-ease a little bit. You know, we, the, we, we become then attached to that calm. And then it's very easy to get ruffled. You know, a noise or a sound or someone disturbs us in the retreat. And then, you know, before we know it, we're caught up in a whole dynamic. So there's no wisdom operating. No wise reflection. You know, there's not, we're not like Ajahn Chah. We're sitting with, 
with something that everyone else thought was disturbing and he was wasn't <laughs> he could you know like another time he was walking on Bindabhat on arms round same visit in in London you know going along it was a little unusual in those days just to Buddhist monks going with their arms bowl and you know along Hampstead Heath around Hampstead and these young kids these young uh, guys came up and and they started to go oh kung fu you know like oh they didn't know this is a like, great Thai master you know kung fu and they they started to do like these kickboxing things towards Ajahn Chah you know and one of the worst things you can do in Thai if you want to really offend someone in Thailand is to point your feet at them you know so they were like sort of doing these you know and Ajahn Chah just carried on walking and and he got back to the Vihara and the, the, the Western monks were horrified. You know, they were mortified. You know, I'm so sorry, Long Paul, so sorry. And apologizing for the, the heathens of, of Britain, you know. And, and Ajahn Chah said, oh, you've got some very good teachers here. <laughs> you know, so he would, he would really help his disciples to say, you know, you know, whatever is disturbing, this is the path. You know, this is the place where we practice. This is where we actually develop the deeper wisdom, which is the, the deeper peace, which is the peace of wisdom. You know, that, the, peace of, the peace of wisdom. You know, seeing how things are, understanding how things are, and not getting caught in suffering around how things are. Not getting stuck and struggling and identifying and pushing and pulling and manipulating and getting into the, the whole you know, conundrum and complexities of the pathways of our suffering. And so the foundation of the calming and the steadying, or another way he would talk about it says, in some ways that, that method or those, those, that style of meditation is dependent on a little bit of suppression, skillful suppression. It's like you put a stone, you, he would say, on, a gra- on the grass, and then you think, oh, the grass isn't growing. That's great. You know, that stone stopped the grass. So you come on retreat and you get peaceful and you think, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm cool. It's all cool. It's good. It's nibbana. It's finished. It's done, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go out and someone cuts you up as you're driving out. And the next thing you're, you're like, you're getting irritated and you start to kind of lose it. You think, How, what happened to my retreat? And he said, it's like, you know, when you take that stone away, the grass grows. You know, when you take the conditions away, the hindrances come. You know, so if we don't have any wisdom and we don't allow ourselves to, to be disturbed, then we don't have the conditions to wisely, you know, the journey of wisdom is, and the cultivation of non-disturbance within disturbance is, is a journey, it's a practice. We might have an ideal about it, as many of us do when we, begin our meditation we, we have a lot of ideals I, I, I thought I would just float away into some you know nibbanic state and that would be it you know, I think Sharada was saying that the other night I think that's how he started but the actual realization of what that, that ideal is and the embodiment and the integration in all aspects of our life you know this is the practice this is a process this is a, a you know a patient process, but it's a process and a practice that's within our reach. This is why the Buddha taught this way, that liberation, freedom of heart, peace, in the face of what is not peaceful, is, is 
possible. And this we should, should always remember and not give up on ourselves. Yeah. Even, you know, even, yeah, we never know. <laughs> never know when things can ripen and open. So turning, so also having, bringing, allowing our practice to, to more deliberately, as, as Ajahn Chah would encourage, to not hide out. He said, don't always hide out in the trenches. You know, <laughs> sometimes you have to move out and engage the battle. <laughs> and this way he was talking, you know, primarily internally, but it's also this practice is internal and external. Not that that's an ultimate duality, but, you know, we start internally. You know, this mind is sometimes like a battlefield. You know, the states, the conditions of what we experience, the material of the heart, of the mind. So this mind is is talked about in, in a particular kind of way, or we can understand it in a particular kind of way when we come to contemplate our experience. We've been contemplating and bringing awareness, using the body and breath to steady, but also contemplating with this insight, the body, how it's changing, how sensation is always moving and oscillating and vibrating and changing. So already there's some wisdom there. Already we're noticing that. And then we've been looking at Vedana, the power of feeling tone and how that shapes us pleasant, unpleasant feeling, and then also how within what our experience is, that we can also take it all back to, to the experience of Vedana or feeling in this moment. And rather than reacting to that feeling by increasing, like if it's pleasant, I want more of it, increasing the desire, or if it's unpleasant, increasing inversion, to it and delusion by not wanting it there, by actually being able to steady, investigate. This is the nature of feeling when it arises, feeling tone. It's very, very powerful. It's very, very powerful in how it shapes our experience. And yet it's also something we can contemplate. And and very dispassionately sometimes, even though the feeling isn't that dispassionate, may be raging. But we can know this is just feeling. It is pleasant or unpleasant. <laughs> and, you know, this is a very helpful way of, of taking what was so subjective and shaping our whole sense of self and then activating us into a manageable contemplation of the nature of phenomena, the nature of our experience. And then within feeling and within the body, and there is also in this third sphere of, 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 of um, contemplation is mind, of the foundations of mindfulness, contemplation of mind. And the mind sometimes is designated in two aspects. There's many ways of talking about mind in Buddhism. We could talk about what's uh, the jitta, it's called that which is Subjective, which is uh, feeling, sensitive, resonant, and that which is what's called manas, that which is goes out and and has more the mental faculty 
that labels, that differentiates, that uh, create that creates the sense of this is separate, this is other, that names. And so this, these, 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 uh, when we come to meditate, we've come to contemplate these two aspects. You know, the thinking, speculating, naming, objectifying, that happens through the mental activity. And then we also contemplate that which is that which is receptive, that which feels, that which is like in a way that the deepest at the deepest sense it has the sense of this is me, this is the I am, the I am that is affected by what is felt, what is perceived, what is the history, what are the currents of our conditioning. So the jitta is a, is a, is a vulnerable experience actually. The jitta, especially as we start to become undefended in our meditation and some of the, the wrapping falls away or, or, or we, we remove some of the, the, the defenses. We're not you know, so much pulled up into our persona, but we're feeling into the jitta a lot. You know, the residue of what has been imprinted. You know, and this can be, this can be a, a sensitive and sometimes painful engagement. You know, what is, what uh, the jitta is, what, when, when, when we're touched or moved by something and we're resonating, this is the quality of the jitta. It also has volition. It can moves towards and moves away from, moves to the pleasant or what the interest is or where the volition wants to go and then it recoils from or moves away from things doesn't want to go to. So this this fundamental sensitivity and this 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 jitta, this heart that the the manas, the, the mind that's going out and objectifying and thinking about the training and mindfulness, we bring that aspect of the mind to come and contemplate the jitta. To contemplate. So the the, the mani you only so many sakara to bring you know, to bring the patterning of the jitta, what is what we're present with, this is how it is, what is emerging as in our contemplation, in our inquiry, in the insight, bringing that into the, uh, this bowl of awareness and contemplation and mindfulness. So that the, the wandering mind that's going into the 10,000 pathways, thinking about this, planning that, we can train that to come directly back to the heart, which it resists because it's often some dukkha there. It's not always easy to come there, you know. So, but we can, you know, with the mindfulness, when we establish mindfulness, when we establish awareness and investigation, there is the space, there is some... And we have some grounding in the samadhi, the samatha, some steadiness. There's the capacity, rather than what we bring our attention to, rather than being washed away and overwhelmed, we can contemplate this is how it is now. What is here? How is the jitta? What is affecting us? So the jitta is very powerfully conditioned. You know, there's so, so much, really that we're with. Uh, um, 
is conditioned by very primary um, survival strategies when we even pre-verbally when we were very young we learn we learn we have learnings around pleasure what's pleasurable or or our needs or what helps us survive and what's painful we have very deep learnings about those you know what threatens our the core matrix of our of the sense of our, our ability to survive and that's felt that's connected with the f- feeling tone and perception good good and bad and move towards and move away from so these are very primary movements of the jitta that are conditioned sometimes you know with fear and and or or desire these kinds of movements and then there's all sorts of cultural and social conditionings that shape that shape us yeah that are projected often onto us. We didn't start off thinking, I am this kind of a person, <laughs> you know, but then we become culturally kind of um, indoctrinated, really, socially indoctrinated according to whatever the culture is or what the predominant cultural dynamic is. And then perhaps within that, our own smaller cultures or tribes, families. Mm. And that's, you know, that's uh, according to race or gender or social class or economic situation. All of these layerings will have some kind of affect on the jitta and will be triggered sometimes in various situations. And, you know, and, and they become to us truths, you know, they become the way we tend to see the world through our biases. And it's not a judgment value on that, it's just just how it is, because that's enculturated in us, and we can go into other cultures. Like I've spent time in, you know, I was training in Thai culture or South Africa or having exposure to the Zulu culture, and you begin to realize how it's not a, it's not a fixed thing. We can become enculturated <laughs> in other meditation culture, <laughs> Buddhist culture, you know, m- retreat culture. Uh, and that's a, that's a learning, and then there's sort of like rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts, and all of that becomes projected into this self-structure. It's quite complex, you know, and, and that, what, what is right and what is wrong and should and shouldn't be. And then this jitta, if there's no contemplation, you know, we can, we can actually get into a situation, and we do often, where the, the, the projections of the jitta, according to our conditioning and our you know our, our our likes and dislikes and our fears and our and and all of that that we can actually be triggered by a situation see someone you know, from a, a different culture or, or be in a situation where perhaps we're not very conscious of our own um inner um negative feelings or painful feelings and the mind can project and before we know it we are we are just we we're not really seeing the other we just start to react to our own projections you know we might walk down the road and we see some kind of uh, a scorpion for example treat <laughs> sometimes or a snake a dangerous snake or something sometimes see immediately one's going to react you know which is a healthy thing but on the other hand there's a lot of extra reactivity that happens because the the projection of the mind this is 
a frightening thing. And then we might see something we don't exactly know, some other kind of insect or creature or something, and we start to react, and we don't even know what it is, but with a fear patterning. So we're just reacting to our own mind. We're not even seeing anymore what's around us. Mm. And, you know, and, then, and then in that way we set up expectations and assumptions, and it, and it gets sort of quite dense and quite... Yeah, quite a limiting and to the point that we don't actually even see our the mind doesn't only project outwardly but it projects inwardly onto the self the jitta so we have all these projections onto this, this poor self think of the job the self has to do <laughs> really you know like negotiate this really strange experience called life you know we're in this planet going so many I don't know how many thousands of miles an hour spinning in the universe. That, you know, to tell you the truth, no one knows what we're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> and we make up all these endless stories about it. You know, it's weird. And this little self-structure with all its wounds and, you know, conditionings is trying to make sense of it all the time. And then on top of that, we project inwardly onto this all of these conditionings and shoulds and shouldn'ts and it's right and it's wrong and... Yeah, so it's a lot to be with, and this is what, when we start to contemplate mind, you know, it's, it's a, there's a lot there. And to understand that it's all very flexible. You know, like, you know, you go into a culture like America, and there's great, you know, it's, it's very highly prized to be an individual in this culture, and to have individual, creative, new, innovative ideas. You know, that's, that's good, Right? It's what, you know, it's a lot of honing to that, a lot of shaping of the psyche around that and the persona. If you go, like we've been, say, to the rural Zulu community and you do a workshop, I remember one of the workshops we were doing is sort of around healthcare and so on. And you, you ask, you know, like a question or process and you ask for answer, you know, what, what, how would you do this or what do you think about that? And I was quite surprised because what I noticed is no one would say anything. And then in the end, what people would do is get into a huddle and they'd agree on the right answer that they wanted to communally feel was the, the, the appropriate answer for them as a group. And then they present, and I go, no, but what do you think? No, I don't. <laughs> it's just a very, and then you start to realize how arbitrary the conditioning is. Yeah, it's, it's really... Just, you know, it's not a fixed thing. And then we have this hierarchy of conditionings. (laughs) So all of this, as we start to contemplate, you know, whether it's our personal or social or global structures, systems that we're conditioned by, it's felt within the system system of the body. So we can bring our contemplation to it, and rather than so much from the meditative point of view, we can do a sociological, you know, sort of investigation and so on, and I think all of that is worthy, but in the meditative point of view, we're just knowing in this moment as we bring attention, there is the experience of the jitta being colored or affected by whatever's emerging within the field of our awareness. And it has within it, you know, maybe it's tinged by fear or anxiety or, or maybe the jitta feels expansive or peaceful. Or maybe there's the feeling of 
um, lust or desire or aversion. So then rather than going to the big story, we can just start to contemplate it's like this. This is the mind affected by this, this experience right now. And within that there is a feeling tone. And within that there's often body sensation. So as we start to, to contemplate these uh, patternings, another way you can think of the mind is that it's fundamental, it's fundamental nature as Kyusara was saying, and as indeed the Buddha said, fundamental nature of the mind's empty, has a quality of a pabasara, luminosity, or, or timelessness, or spaciousness, spacelessness, or can't be designated in time and space or by limit. You can't find you can't you can't find the mind actually, and yet it illuminates everything. Yeah. It's like uh, you know that the, the another uh, another image sometimes used is like when we watch the movie screen. You know, it's like we're completely enthralled by the movies that we're seeing. You know, we love and we hate and we and we cry and we get scared. But then you turn around and you look at the light projecting it all. You know, none of that would happen without the light that's projecting the movie. And you know, suddenly the movie collapses, and you go, "Where did that go?" <laughs> <laughs> I was so enthralled in that movie, and you know, and it's the same with the mind. You know, we have this jitters, all its patternings, and all its all these are stories, and we get enthralled, and we get upset, and we get overwhelmed, and we we have big missions that we have to sort out. My problems, you know, and and it's big, and it's thick, and it's deep, and it's intense, and it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fascinating and you know it's everything you know and then one day you realize wow you know this is all happening because the mind's projecting you know there's a there's the fundamental light of consciousness and this is in the insight meditation we start to contemplate all of this without so much of the such and charge this it's not a probably this isn't probably a particularly popular teaching here, but (laughs) he would say, concerning this samatha, calm and vipassana insight, the important thing is to develop these in your own hearts. When I practice, if a thought of hate arose, I ask myself why. If a thought of love arose, I ask myself why. Just investigate this one point until you're able to resolve feelings of love and hate. And this is the probably the less popular piece if we think of it culturally when I was able to stop loving what <laughs> if I when I was able to stop loving and hating under any circumstance I was able to transcend suffering then it doesn't matter what happens the heart and mind are released and at ease so are we ready for that you know it's interesting isn't it you know because it's like you know this being stuck into the movie it's so compelling for us. There's a, a, another um, lovely um, teaching from N- N- Nasruddin, the, the Sufi maverick sage. And he's, uh, I think, Kitty Saro. This is, by the way, this is from our new book, just to give it an American plug. <laughs> it will be available. But Kitty Saro writes about this in his uh, chapter in the book. Uh, Nasruddin's going through this bag of chilies, you know, and he's eating them and he's crying and his mouth is burning and. 
his disciples say, what are you doing? What are you doing? He said, I'm looking for the sweet one. <laughs> and that's, that's what you know, Ajahn Chah would always say, you know, you're looking for that sweet one, you know. It's uh, like Burma, when, when have you had enough? You know, when you've had enough, looking for the sweet one. Because it's that moment when we start to have enough of all, all the patternings, yeah. And it's not that we shouldn't have great tenderness, great patience and compassioning with those patternings, and, you know, great... Um, willingness to really allow ourselves to to understand, uh, meaning in that that not so much just intellectually, but that understanding of how Shardo is talking about it to stand with the dukkha. And I don't mean just dukkha. I mean sometimes it is suffering, but dukkha in that it's 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 unreliable because it's shifting and moving. To be stand with all of that that we experience, the world of the mind internal and external, with all its fascinations and complexities. But that moment of realizing, you know, um, when is it enough to keep looking for the sweet one? And when do we can, you know, start to turn the mind? To turn the attention in a different way. One of the great um, illuminaries realizers of our age, Sri Nesagadatta, he wrote that fabulous, well, he didn't write anything, he didn't need to write anything. <laughs> Beings like that don't write things. <laughs> they just are, you know. It's just, but people wrote down things he said. Um, one of the things he said is, use the mind to know the mind, which is the vipassana. Use the mind to know the mind. This is the insight meditation we're doing. Use the mind to know the mind. It is the best preparation for going beyond the mind. So to use the mind, to use the steadiness, the investigation, the mindfulness, to really, we really do get to know these pathways of the mind through this practice. You know, it was a shock for me when I first started to practice as a, particularly as a Buddhist nun, because I so wanted to be a nice spiritual person, to realize that actually I wasn't so nice (laughs) sometimes. And, you know, I could feel great hatred and rage and anger and really unacceptable feelings and and tensions. And uh, to, to really realize, yes, this too, you know, this too, that I can be triggered. We can all be triggered, you know. So sitting in the line, waiting for your food to come down the line. There's a lot around food when you're a monastic because you only get one, in, in the early days, when I was practicing, you have one hit of it a day, you know. So it kind of brings up a lot of survival structures. And uh, you're very activated. And I remember one day this cake going around. It's like, it's like calculating how many pieces and how many people in the line and realizing I was going to drop off the end, you know. And I, I, yeah, I had a really massive sort of reaction to this. And even though I was, my little logical mind was going, don't worry, it'll be all right, it was not all right. <laughs> it was definitely not all right. You know, I was about to go and demolish the whole monastery at that particular point. <laughs> and it's, it's very shocking to see that part of oneself. Yeah. But when we, when we go, use the mind to go beyond the mind, there's the, the Buddha taught us to first of all see that whatever we're with, in the flickering 
play of the mind is that it is flickering. It is flickering. When we really see it in the moment, yes, when we don't, when the whole construct, it's thick and it's real and it's impinging. But when we investigate with this steadiness, you, know, you have to have some of that steadiness, or as Jen Charles said, it's like the back of a knife. You have the blade, the vipassana, to, to look, to cut into what is happening here, the vedana, the feeling tone. It is like this, the sensation, it is like this, the mind state is colored like this. But you have to have the back of the knife to the samadhi, to have the power to, to, to inquire and investigate and go through the layers. Or he said it's like a candle. You know, you want to light a candle, it's a dark room, you want to light it to illuminate what's happening here. But if you don't have the wax, like the samadhi, the, the strength to hold that flame, then it, the, your light will go out and then you just get caught in the state again. So when we're practicing, we find ourselves caught and come back, simplify, steady, and then we can look, investigate. And what makes this really possible is that we start to see this is uh, changing, whatever it is. And not only is it changing, it's like a magic show. And as we start to go in and look even deeper, we start to notice that actually uh, the analogy that... um, that the Buddha said, he said, it's like this sense of self and the structures of the self and the, all of the structures of the mind, this, what's called the sankhara, these patternings, these reactivities, these thoughts and feelings and stories and how they all shape the sense of me and my life. So it's actually, it's a bit like a river. Yes, there is a me in my life, you know, in the same way as we look at the Ganges or the Mississippi River and you look at that river and you say, yes, we all know. I mean, I couldn't believe the first time I crossed the Mississippi River how big it was. You know, it's like, wow, this, this big river. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger than Hobbitland in England, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> so, yeah, but if you go up and try and capture that, you put your hand in the river and you try and pull it out, it's going to run through your fingers. Because there's nothing there. In the same way, in all the structures, whatever it is, you go in and you, know, you try and capture. You know, this is from the meditative, the Dharma eye. You know, I'm not talking from so much maybe therapeutic or psychological eye. It's looking at self-structures for a particular purpose, a very good purpose and so on. But the Dharma eye, you go and try and pick something up and hold on. Even to the moment that just went, it's not there anymore. So in fact, we're in this. We're caught in this uh, illusion, structured by through the play of the mind, and it's very compelling for us, and we're very stuck to it. You know, in a certain point, somehow, something changes. You know, something happens, and we perhaps have a moment of uh, unhooking. Or it unhooks itself. <laughs> that can happen too. I remember once when I when I was a, a young nun in a monastery, and for me the the most I mean there are many difficult things, but getting up at four in the morning was not my something I went for in a big way. <laughs> so in the end, I realised I had to have a strategy to do it, which was basically get up immediately, otherwise it was curtains; it would be all over. 
So I used to have this strategy, I'd put the alarm far enough away that I'd have to actually move and then like bang it, you know, and that movement would sort of like kind of propel me upright somehow. <laughs> so one morning I did this whole like boom, and I was upright and my mind had stopped. There was absolutely, for some bizarre reason, not a thought in it. And it didn't come, there were nothing came, and I, you know, I had no idea where I was, who I was, what was happening, where I should be, and I couldn't get it back. I could not, and, and it was a little kind of interesting. And I was like, and I could feel a little panic coming, you know, like uh, there's something I'm missing here. <laughs> And then it was like, well, this is interesting, you know, and it was like, wow, this is, like, this is great. And then suddenly this thing went blob, and it was like, blub, 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 I've got to get going, you know. And it was like, oh, no, this sort of, it was like this machine just got this tr- trigger. And the whole thing started again, me, you know, me and my life and my struggle and, ugh, you know, it's like, ooh. <laughs> So Ajahn Chai used to say, you know, one of the conditioning factors for the disengagement is, uh, or the Buddhists would call this uh, nibida, which is this, this, uh, this dis- or nibida, these words nibida, which is disenchantment, not being so enchanted, or in Thai Burmai, which is like, it's like it sounds. <laughs> Have you had enough, you know? Or viraga, and it's like uh, dispassion. Niroda, which is like outside of the walls of the mind, there is a place. There is a reality. There is a dimension of being outside of the walls of the mind that we can realize, we awaken to as the most true abiding, the fundamental immovable depth of the jitta, still all the same mind, but at its depth. So we practice, we practice, you know, we practice, and what else are we going to (laughs) do? We practice, and as is said in the suttas, you know, we practice the path and the activity of the path itself, it's not that we have to do it in a way to make all of this happen. The activity of the path itself breaks up that which obstructs this realization. And through that process, the Dhamma, the, um, the, in a lawful way, arises according to its own unfolding. This is a piece we cannot do. We can't make it happen, but we can put the path activity in place as we've been doing for the ripening of that unfolding, for that realization, for liberation. You know, through consciously contemplating. Whatever it is, this too will pass. This is the practice of equanimity. You know, whether it's an um, a unpleasant mind state, doubt, fear, whether it's winning the lottery, whether it's, you know, having huge amounts of assets, suddenly having no assets, whether it's health, sickness, you know, whether it's this whole global system, 
And we're probably going to get to live to see some of that. <laughs> this too will pass. Whatever it is, this is the nature of all things. And yet everything will pass back into this unmoving light of consciousness. And from there, miracles happen. And I want to finish tonight by, um, someone mentioned a very beautiful reflection in the questions today about breaking the chain. Breaking the chain, these moments when we break through the patterning, can be just a small decision not to go along the usual pathway, like to do a walking meditation instead of scurrying back to our comfort zone, whatever it is, sets the conditions for something else completely outside the sphere of our strategies to happen, some miracle to happen. This is a beautiful example of this from uh, a retreat that we were teaching in KwaZulu, um, <coughs> at the uh, Buddhist retreat center, and we're doing a lot of Kuan Yin practice, which is Kuan Yin really is a metaphor for that deep depth of mystery, you know, the, the the mystery of the fundamental awakened, liberated heart. And she went walking outside of the boundary of the retreat into the forest opposite. I was walking with a friend in a forest and we realized we were being followed and we knew at once the man was dangerous. He caught up, stopped us and asked me to go with him. As I refused and turned away, he grabbed my neck and pushed me to the ground. My friend threw a log at him, which gave me a chance to get on my feet and we ran. But something told me to stop. I sensed that the chase was strengthening him, casting us as predator and prey in an ancient story with an inevitable ending. To stop that story's momentum, I stopped running, turned to face him and shouted, What do you want? In that moment, everything changed in a way that is impossible to describe. For the first time in my life, I was entirely without fear knowing with utter conviction that no matter what this man did to me, he could never hurt me. As he grabbed my wrist, I was overwhelmed by a powerful love for him, and everything in the forest burst into a radiant, pulsating life, as if the trees were on fire with the same love. In this indescribable experience, a few sensations remain clear. Everyone who had ever loved me came to mind and I felt their presence there among the trees. My protection was beyond question and I was overcome by a joyful peace I had never known. When the man held a knife to my throat and told me to lie down and be quiet, his sadness ached in me. A mother watching her small child hurt himself through ignorance might feel the same way. I wanted him to stop endangering himself in this way not with any urgency or fear, but simply because I could see that his self-torment was unnecessary. I spoke words I don't remember choosing. You're a man. You're a good man. You don't hurt people. Whether or not he understood, I felt his relief as he too realized he didn't have to do what he was doing. His grip on my wrist softened and I stayed with him holding his hand and repeated the words, 
you're a man, a good man. By now my friend had found a heavy branch as a weapon and was... (laughs) (laughs) One's got to be practical as well, you know. You know, tie your camel and trust God and all that. (laughs) Had found a heavy branch as a weapon and was quietly making it clear she would put up a fight. I released my hand, and he lowered the knife, and my friend and I walked away. That night, the man came to me in a dream. He wanted to show me something, a wound in the side of his back. It was a deep, fatal gash, raw and bleeding, and I knew it had been there for a very long, long time. With the same love I had known in the forest, I put my hand on the wound. Afterward, when I told my story to others, they commented on our courage. My friend showed extraordinary courage, but what happened to me was something different. It was grace, and it is everyone's. So may we trust this extraordinary and sometimes excruciating and mysterious process that we're in of our awakening that we will unfold into the grace and shifts that can happen that can bring us to a response both within our own lives and within this suffering and endangered world um, that uh, can be the conditions for something else to happen for all of us from this great flowering Um, and power of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.